All right, good morning. It's good to see you all again. Um, We are picking back up in a study of the attributes of God. Uh, Introduced it two weeks ago, um, and then I was gone last week. So it's good to be back, picking back up uh, with the attributes of God. So let me, as we begin, pray, and then we'll get going. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, you are... The unsearchable God, you are high above us, you are supreme, you are in so many ways unknowable in your essence, and yet you condescend to make yourself known to your creatures. Lord, you command us to seek you out, and what, a, what an impossible task that is, and yet you reveal yourself. And so for those whom you call, we, your, your sheep, whom you have called, Uh, There is no easier thing but to find you where you say you may be found. And here we are, Lord, seeking to find you, seeking to know you. Uh, Help us to do so by faith, uh, not looking by sight or by uh, the strength of our own intellect or understanding, but uh, by faith alone, for that is how you may be seen and known. Lord, bless this time and this conversation. Uh, May you be glorified in it and through it, even as we look forward to gathering in worship together uh, later on today. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, I want to read, as we get going, Psalm 93. Psalm 93 says this, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with, clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. And the mighty waves of the sea. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. So we are continuing, uh, really beginning in earnest, a study of Arthur W. Pink's book, The Attributes of God. Um, This book here, we do have two copies at this point. So if anybody is lacking a copy, would like one, um, we have two copies. The catch is you have to read it, and then you have to come every week, most weeks. We'll be checking. Um, no, but if it, will, it will, if it will profit you, if you will use it, uh, we have two copies that we'd be del- delighted to give you. So uh, see me after if you want one of those. We'd be happy to, uh, to make that happen. Um, this is a collection of Pink's essays uh, that are a great help in contemplating the divine attributes of the great God that we worship. Um, So last time we introduced the study, not quite getting into the book, um, but we talked about uh, one of the attributes, not one that Pink goes into, but we talked about the simplicity of God. Um, It's an attribute that describes to us how God is not composed or made up of parts. Um, From this we learn that God is the attributes that he possesses. So where he reveals his attributes in scripture or in nature... God is revealing something of his divine essence and being 
to us. So again, as we start the study, I just want us to remember that we are not merely studying a book that was written by Pink. We're not um, engaging in a theoretical or an intellectual exercise. We are seeking to study God Himself, the Lord of creation, the Most High. So let us approach with the proper reverence that is due His name. Uh, something I neglected to say two weeks ago, and I meant to, uh, I meant to emphasize this, uh, is that all of God's attributes are shared by all three persons of the Trinity. This is very important uh, to a Trinitarian understanding of, of God. There is no attribute that the Father possesses that the Son and the Holy Spirit lack. If the Son lacked some attribute of the Father, then He would be lacking something of the divine essence and being and would therefore not be, as the Nicene Creed puts it, of one being and substance with the Father. This is something the early church fathers uh, identified and and understood from Scripture and defended at great cost. Uh, And it was one of the great controversies um, that the Son and the Spirit are of one being and substance with the Father. And so if we understand the attributes of God as being uh, the uh, essence, the, the being, the substance of the Father then we need to understand that all of these attributes are present at all times, equally present and true, fully satisfied at all times in all three persons of the Trinity, though they are manifested to us in various ways at various times. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we emphasize that going forward. So when we're speaking of the attributes of God, we are not just talking about God the Father. We are speaking of the Godhead, the Trinity, all three persons in possession of these attributes as the being and substance of the divine. So our aim in this study is to increase in our understanding of God as he has revealed himself, and thereby to grow in our faith, in our confidence in him, our assurance in his promises, and our obedience to his word. This is the target at which we aim, the garden that we hope to cultivate in our hearts. So may God give the increase and bear spiritual fruit in our hearts through this study according to his good pleasure. So today I had hoped to um, cover the first two chapters, but in classic fashion, uh, we're just going to be doing the first chapter. Um, The first chapter of Pink is on the solitariness of God. It's something um, he packs a lot in. So uh, for a variety of reasons, I didn't didn't think we could get through uh, two chapters. So we're just going to do the first one. This is one that is, uh, I think, another foundational attribute to understand. So before we jump into that first chapter, though, I do want to read the preface to Pink's book. It's less than a page, so I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a great statement on uh, the necessity of knowing God's attributes. So I'm just going to read this preface in full. So this is Pink. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. That's Job 22, 21. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty glory in his might, let not the rich glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord. That's Jeremiah nine twenty three and 24. A spiritual and saving knowledge of God is the greatest need of every human creature. The foundation of all true knowledge of God must be a clear mental apprehension of His perfections as revealed in Holy Scripture. 
An unknown God can neither be trusted, served, nor worshipped. In this book, an effort has been made to set forth some of the principal perfections of the divine character. If the reader is to truly profit from his perusal of the pages that follow, he needs to definitely and earnestly beseech God to bless them to him, to apply his truth to the conscience and heart, so that his life will be transformed thereby. Something more than a theoretical knowledge of God is needed by us. God is only truly known in the soul as we yield ourselves to him, submit to his authority, and regulate all the details of our lives by his holy precepts and commandments. Then shall we know, if we follow on in the path of obedience, to know the Lord. That's Hosea 6.3. If any man will do his will, he shall know. That's John 7.17. The people that do know their God shall be strong. That's Daniel 11.32. So that's how Pink begins, Uh, again, calling us to a knowledge of God. Uh, How can we know God? Uh, And the great benefits that come to the believer when we know God as he has revealed himself. So in chapter one, the solitariness of God. Uh, By the word solitariness, Pink is capturing a number of ideas. Um, and in the opening um, words, he, he captures some of this. I'm going to read another excerpt here, um, and I will be reading excerpts. I, I, I want to strike a balance, I think, if I can, between just reading the chapters. They're not that long. They're maybe five, you know, five pages or so each chapter. So I could just sit and read the chapters, and that would, I think, be of great profit. But I do want to, I want to um, use excerpts of Pink because he, he words things so well. Uh, but I also want to kind of uh, help digest them and, and um, talk about them and even bring in some other uh, materials as well. So I, there will be a lot of excerpts of pink. Uh, so I hope that that's okay. And let me know if it's hard to follow or not the best way to do this. But uh, here we go. So this is um, pink again, introducing uh, his chapter on the solitariness of God. The title of this article is perhaps not sufficiently explicit to indicate its theme. This is partly due to the fact that so few today are accustomed to meditate upon the personal perfections of God. Comparatively few of those who occasionally read the Bible are aware of the awe-inspiring and worship-provoking grandeur of the divine character. That God is great in wisdom, wondrous in power, yet full of mercy, is assumed by many to be common knowledge. Almost common knowledge. But to entertain anything approaching an adequate conception of his being, his nature, his attributes, as these are revealed in Holy Scripture, is something which very, very few people in these degenerate times have attained unto. God is solitary in his excellency. And then he quotes Exodus fifteen eleven: Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? So by using the word solitariness, Pink seeks to capture what many theologians describe using other words. God's independence, his self-existence, or his aseity is another word to say self-existence, aseity. God's self-sufficiency. Solitariness we can think of as one of God's incommunicable attributes. It's one that belongs to him alone. And that we as creatures cannot in any way experience, possess, or participate in. 
even in a shadowy or imperfect manner, as with some of his other attributes like love, justice, and mercy. Uh, look, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. There are communicable attributes that we can in some way experience, participate in, but there are uh, many that we cannot. We are creatures. He is the creator. There is an infinite distance and gulf between us, and there are things that belong to him alone. Uh, so we, can, we, we exist as distinct persons, uh, so in that way there is some independence but we still are dependent upon God. We are not perfectly uh, independent. God is perfectly independent. So these are some other concepts that are, are kind of wrapped up in one as Pink uses the word solitariness. In some of the reading I've done, I haven't come across other writers or theologians that use the word solitariness to capture this idea. So he's really going after several different things uh, that theologians treat in, in different ways. Uh, independence, self-existence, things like that. So the basic idea here is that prior to creation, from eternity past, God existed alone in and of himself. And when God was alone, he lacked nothing. That's the basic idea. On the first page of scripture, in the very first sentence, we read that in the beginning, God. So before anything was made that was made, God existed independently. He already was in and of himself. This is the very first thing scripture reveals to us. So it's fitting that Pink's book begins here. There's a few phrases Pink uses in the chapter to kind of get at the idea that he's seeking to convey. One of those, uh, he says that God is solitary in his excellency. He says that during a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Also, God is all blessed in himself and was perfectly blessed in himself before the first creature was called into being. God is solitary in his majesty, unique in his excellency, peerless in his perfections. I want to read... A quote here from Herman Bavink that also explains some of this. Uh, Bavink is describing um, particularly the independence of God. Uh, again, it's it's captured in, in Pink's, it's part of what Pink is getting at uh, in solitariness. And this passage is uh, from Bavink is just loaded with with references to scripture that I'm not gonna um, that I'm not gonna say I'm gonna skip the references but just know and I can happy to to show you this there's there's many um, so this is loaded with quotations and references to scripture the first thing scripture teaches us concerning God is that he has a free independent existence and life of his own that is distinct from all creatures. He has a being, a nature, substance, or essence of his own, not in distinction from his attributes, but coming to the fore and disclosing itself in all his perfections and attributes. Again, like we talked about last time, this is what's being revealed in God's attributes. It is his being. He's not separate from his attributes. He is revealed in his attributes. So Bob Inc. again, he bears his own names, names that do not belong to any creature. Among these names, that of Yahweh stands supreme. 
This name describes him as the one who is and will always be what he was, that is, who eternally remains the same in relation to his people. He is self-existent. He existed before all things and in all things, uh, excuse me, and all things exist only through him. In an absolute sense, he is Lord, Lord of all the earth. He is dependent on nothing, but everything depends on him. He kills and makes alive. He forms the light and creates the darkness. He makes weal and creates woe. Weal meaning like welfare. He does according to his will with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, so that people are in his hand as clay in the hands of a potter. His counsel and good pleasure is the ultimate ground of all that is and happens. Accordingly, he does all things for his own sake, for the sake of his name and praise. Nor does he need anything, for he is all sufficient. And he has life in himself. He is absolutely independent, not only in his existence, but consequently also in all his attributes and perfections, in all his decrees and deeds. So that's, uh, again, where, why I think it's so useful that Pink starts here. He is independent. He is solitary in all of his attributes. Um, Self-existent. They come from him. They are in him. They are for him. They come from nothing. Uh, he exists always the same. He is eternal. Uh, that idea will we'll come to a little bit more in later chapter, uh, dealing with the immutability or unchanging nature of God. Uh, but he is always the same. Uh, self-existent. His existence is not derived or dependent upon anything. Uh, so Pink, I, I want to kind of go through some of the, the themes, the key ideas that Pink explores in this chapter on uh, the solitariness of God. First, Pink goes into the idea that God is eternally self-sufficient and self-satisfied, as we've been saying. Before creation, God was, and before he created anything, he lacked nothing. Another shorter excerpt here from Pink. In the beginning, God, that's Genesis 1.1. There was a time, if time it could be called, when God, in the unity of his nature, though subsisting equally in three divine persons, dwelt all alone. In the beginning, God, there was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to hymn his praises, no universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one but God, and that not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. So again, God lacked nothing. He lacks nothing in himself. Even before anything was created, God needed nothing. The second idea Pink uh, emphasizes is that God was under no obligation to create all things. He wasn't compelled to do so. He did not need to. He did so according to the good pleasure of his will, as it says in Ephesians 1.5, uh, just as he does all things. 
He did so for the purpose of manifesting His glory and making it known. So the idea that God is perfectly independent and free from any obligation to creatures and that He owes nothing to any of His creatures is a key idea in God's solitariness. And this is pink again. God was under no constraint, no obligation, no necessity to create. That he did so was purely a sovereign act on his part, caused by nothing outside himself, determined by nothing but his own mere good pleasure. For he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11 That he did create was simply for his manifestative glory. And this is where uh, Pink spends some time, and I think it's very helpful, distinguishing between what he describes as God's essential glory and God's manifestative glory. So God's essential glory is that which is and always has been true about God in his essence and his being. It belongs to his essence. It is eternal and unchanging because God is is eternal and unchanging. So nothing can add to his glory, nothing can take away from it. On the other hand, God's manifestative glory, that is how he chooses to manifest or reveal his glory to us. So we behold or recognize God's glory, we can ascribe or attribute to God what is already his, one of the reasons we call these the attributes of God, But we cannot add to or increase his glory. I want to read Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 29, 1 and 2. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So when Scripture describes giving or ascribing to to God the glory due His name, it does not mean at all that God is lacking something that we can supply. Instead, Scripture compels us to respond in a worthy, obedient, and reverent manner when the Most High God freely chooses to reveal something of Himself to His lowly creatures. We are giving Him what is due to His name, what is proper to ascribe to Him. The only proper response response to such a glorious revelation is worship. However, important to remember, and Pink emphasizes that, as he says, God is no gainer from our worship. And this, I think, is is very helpful, even as we engage in worship, as we uh, gather later today to do so, that we profit God nothing. So I want to read another excerpt from Pink here. Uh, Quoting from Nehemiah 9.5. 
Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So it says there to bless the Lord, but it says that he is above uh, above all blessing. Pink says, God is no gainer even from our worship. He was in no need of that external glory of his grace, which arises from his redeemed. For he is glorious enough in himself without that. What was it that moved him to predestinate his elect to the praise of the glory of his grace? It was, as Ephesians 1.5 tells us, according to the good pleasure of his will. Pink later quotes Luke 17.10 that says, When ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. So our obedience to God, even in worship, profits God nothing, meaning we cannot add anything to God. He is not seeking something that he lacks. uh, And yet we are commanded uh, to worship him. Uh, That's something that uh, the Westminster Confession um, picks up as well in um, section 16.5, dealing with our duty to God. uh, and, And I think... I can't remember. I think that's on good works. Maybe I'm blanking on, on that. But it's, it describes us as unprofitable servants. Uh, all that when we do all that is commanded by God of us, when we even if we were to perfectly obey the law, which we cannot do, uh, we would be unprofitable, meaning just adding nothing to God in His glory. So the difference between God's essential glory and His manifestative glory. His essential glory is what he possesses in himself and always has from eternity past. His manifestative glory is what he reveals from time to time in various ways, uh, in different objects of his glory in which he reveals it. But it adds nothing to him. John? Yes? That could be a hard concept to grasp, I think, because some of it is the failing of our English words and the way that we understand them. You know, this is not God's solitariness, as in like a hermit in the woods is considered solitary today. This is solitary in the sense that he is not a contingent being, and we are, we are contingent beings. Uh, there is a cause related to our existence. There is not cause related to his existence. He is self-contained. Um, and that's why it, I think that's why it's hard to grasp these concepts sometimes uh, because of our own contingency. Um, we have a hard time understanding how we can not add to his glory because we think right. of things just in different terms because of our own contingency. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. That is helpful. It's, it's something that... Um, Pink doesn't emphasize as much, but others who who uh, deal more directly with the independence of God do get into that that He is caused by nothing. Um, he there is no you know if He were even caused by Himself, there would be some implication of of changing in Him, uh, and that Scripture excludes. It's an impossibility. And but we, like Dan was saying, as creatures, our entire existence, our entire uh, experience is one of cause and effect. We exist as an effect of a cause, not only from generations and, and, and natural um, you know, generation uh, through bearing children, we are caused in, in a sense by our parents, but ultimately by God as the first and prime cause. 
And so, uh, again, like Dan's saying, it's, it's, we are contingent entirely, and our, all of our mind is finite and contingent on something. Uh, but God is, again, solitary, alone, uh, separate, uncaused, uh, self-existent, self-contained. You know, there's, there's not enough words <laughs> to describe it, and that's what's challenging. He can't learn anything because he already knows everything. Right, right. He, he can't learn anything. There's nothing new. But that's why he also describes himself as I am. Right. Because that's all that's needed. He is. I am is that self-contained, solitary, non-contingent. Yeah, absolutely. The I, the I am. The I am. That's what's captured there. Thank you, Dan. That's helpful. Okay, we may end up finishing earlier than I anticipated. Weird. (laughs) So what are we to do with this idea? How can we engage with this? We are commanded and compelled as creatures to seek out the God who is separate, solitary, independent. He owes us nothing. How can we know this God? How are we to respond to this God when He deals with us? Uh, So Pink concludes uh, the chapter, and I am going to read another chunk here uh, and, and probably interrupt throughout a little bit to kind of discuss it. Uh, But he talks at the end of his chapter, he concludes with a bit of an application uh, related to how we can know such a God who is solitary, who is high above us, who is independent, uh, caused by nothing. How can we as creatures uh, know him? He needs nothing from us. He's not obliged to make himself known. So Pink says this, Such a one is to be revered, worshipped, adored. He is solitary in his majesty, unique in his excellency, peerless in his perfections. He sustains all, but is himself independent of all. He gives to all, but is enriched by none. Such a God cannot be found out by searching. He can be known only as he is revealed to the heart by the Holy Spirit through the word. Again, the idea that God is spirit. How can a God who is spirit be known except spiritually by the heart? It is true that creation demonstrates a creator so plainly that men are without excuse. Yet we still have to say with Job, Lo, these are part of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? That's Job 26.14. Pink here goes into uh, dealing with what is known as the argument of God's existence from design. The argument from design, which he's not a fan of. (laughs) He says, the so-called argument from design by well-meaning apologists, and he puts it in quotes, has, we believe, done much more harm than good. 
For it is attempted to bring down the great God to the level of finite comprehension, and thereby has lost sight of his solitary excellence. Analogy has been drawn between a savage finding a watch upon the sands, and from a close examination of it, he infers a watchmaker. So far, so good. But attempt to go further. Suppose that savage sits down on the sand and endeavors to form to himself a conception, a conception of this watchmaker. His personal affections and manners, his dispositions, acquirements, and moral character. All that, all that goes to make up a personality. Could he ever think or reason out a real man, the man who made the watch, so that he could say, I am acquainted with him? It seems trifling to ask such questions. But is the eternal and infinite God so much more within the grasp of human reason? No, indeed. The God of Scripture can only be known by those to whom he makes himself known. Again, he is separate, distinct, high above. He, he owes us nothing. He is self-contained. And how can we, who are contingent beings, dependent beings, know this God? How can we grasp him? It is only as he is Make, makes himself known. And th- this, where Pink goes here, I, I find to be incredibly helpful and encouraging. It should not make it more difficult, but I think it should free us as we seek out God, as we seek to know Him. This, this idea should be liberating in, in a way. He says, Nor is God known by the intellect. So He cannot be found out by searching nor can he be known by the intellect. God is spirit, John 4, 24, and therefore can only be known spiritually. But fallen man is not spiritual, he is carnal. He is dead to all that is spiritual. Unless he is born again, supernaturally brought from death unto life, miraculously translated out of darkness into light, he cannot even see the things of God, still less apprehend them. And there he's referring to and, and quoting John 3, 3 and 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The Holy Spirit has to shine in our hearts, not our intellects, in order to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6. How encouraging that it is not of our intellect. Uh, if, if it were, then those who have higher intellects, sharper minds would have some advantage. And those with lower IQ, lower intellect would be at a disadvantage to knowing God. And God is not known that way. Uh, That is the wrong way to think about Him. So even we, uh, especially we who value knowledge, as we should, we should should seek after and cultivate an intellect. We should seek to know God. That's important. Uh, But it's important to recognize that's not dependent on our ability to understand. It is a gift of God. Uh, that is incredibly important thing to remember and to remind one another of. All are in equal standing before God, in equal standing as we seek to know Him. And that's a consequence not, uh, not of ourselves, but of God who is so above us, so separate. His infinite distance from us in His being is what makes us all on the same level uh, together. If we just compare ourselves to one another, we might see distinctions. We might see some that are higher, some that are lower. Um, but when we compare ourselves to God, we are nothing. We are dust. We are, we are 
worms. <laughs> I like to, uh, that's how I like to think of it. I'm, I'm a worm compared to God. Less than a worm. And Pink says this, even that spiritual knowledge is but fragmentary. The regenerated soul has to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. As 2 Peter 3.18 says, the principal prayer and aim of Christians should be that we walk in walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1.10 So we are called to increase in the knowledge of God, grow in the knowledge of God, but when we uh, wrestle with and understand and, and comprehend in some small way the solitariness of God, His independence, His self-sufficiency, all of these ideas that Pink has been describing, it tempers our expectations that we depend upon Him alone even to know Him. So it should be our prayer. We should pray to know God. We should ask Him to make Himself known to us. We should seek Him where He can be found. And where can He be found? In the Scriptures, in His ordinances. He says that is where He can be found. That is where He promises to reveal Himself. That's His ordinary means of grace. The Word, sacraments, and prayer. That is the ordinary way in which He can be known. So our conclusion here, the takeaway here on what the solitariness of God is, is this, that God exists in and of himself. That's his self-existence or aseity. God lacks nothing. He needs nothing and nothing can be added to him. That's his self-sufficiency. He's sufficient, all sufficient in himself. God is perfectly independent in his being and in his works. He is caused by nothing, dependent upon nothing. He acts only according to the good pleasure of his own will. That's his independence. And that God can be known only as he chooses to make himself known. So the proper response from lowly creatures to whom he condescends to make himself known is to worship and to seek to know him more. Which I think is a fitting way to conclude this lesson as we uh, gather in just a little bit to worship together the God who is solitary. So I will pray and then we'll be done. Lord God in heaven, we praise you. We worship you. And yet we are so conscious of how failing, how weak, how, how small is even our praise. For we are filled with Contradiction. We are filled with uh, sin in our flesh. And yet, Lord, you, the, the uh, solitary one, the independent one, who is high above us, invite us into your very presence. And you do so in Christ. You make yourself known in Christ. And in him we can approach your very throne. And we can do so boldly. For it is Christ's sufficiency, Christ's merit, Christ's righteousness, which grants us a place. And that is a gift from you. For that we thank you. We praise you. Lord, help us to increase in our knowledge of you. Uh, Grant to us that grace in greater measure, day by day, week by week. Lord, where we uh, cannot uh, seem to perceive you or apprehend you, help us to increase in faith and uh, rest in you nonetheless. For we know that your ways are not our ways. And our minds cannot conceive 
of all of your perfections. Lord, fill us with a desire to know you and to worship, even as we gather in corporate worship, in obedience to your word, for you call us together to worship. Help us to do so obediently, cheerfully, and with much joy as is fitting those who have been rescued and redeemed by you. Lord, all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.